0: Hey, it's that time again. Thank you for downloading our content. We love you, all of you. Thank you for carving out time from your day to listen to what we have to say. It's always uh, it's always humbling. I say that all the time, but it, it never gets old. I am very humbled that people choose to spend their time listening to what we have to say on this show. Hopefully, it educates and enriches your noggin in all the things that we cover, You know, certainly mental health, but also politics and spirituality and uh, how to live life and parenting, and uh, we cover most of that in this interview. I talked with Adam Coleman in this particular podcast. He has just recently made the switch to full-time author. He used to be working in the IT world for a long time, and now he's he's doing authorship. and He's got a publishing company, and he, a couple of years ago, came out with a book called Black Victim to Black Victor talking all about how uh, you over you can overcome your plights in life if you have enough you know, character and fortitude. And so he talks about race, and we talk about uh, a little bit about politics, but mostly about how we overcome life's struggles. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to um, interacting with him more down the road. I, you know, One of the benefits of doing a podcast, if you've ever thought about doing it, I highly encourage you to, to do so, is that you get the chance to meet people from all over the world and um, discuss ideas, and it's really cool. And sometimes they end up becoming friends, and sometimes you just uh, learn some stuff. And either way, it helps augment and enrich your noggin, which is what we want to do. So if you are struggling or you know somebody who is, please check out WTTA.org. That's walk the talk America. That's the WTTA.org slash love. Go to WTTA.org slash love. Take a free and anonymous mental health screening. It can help improve your own insights as well as to give you some guidance on whether or not you need help. Or if you're just struggling with normal life. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, what we think is anxiety or depression is not really that it's just a normal response to life and you don't necessarily need professional psychotherapy. And sometimes you do. And in that case, uh, Zephyr wellness is available for you. If you happen to live in Nevada, we will gladly treat you. And if you don't PsychologyToday.com is a great way to find people in your area. You can search by zip code and, uh, I'm not getting any money from psychology today. I certainly didn't get any money from Adam to, to interview him, and I and Walk the Talk America is a nonprofit 501c3. So I just throw these resources out there for you guys so that you can use them if you need and um, and if you want, you can learn more from their websites. Uh, I just want to make Earth better. So that being said, I hope that this conversation helps to make Earth better a little bit, at least by validating some of the dudes that we have listening. And knowing that you can overcome things and you can leave behind uh, maybe perhaps a checkered past and focus in on raising your own kids and being a good dad and all that stuff. So thanks for listening. Please share around, subscribe, all the things. Enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for downloading our content as usual. It's always an honor that people uh, select time out of their day to hear me talk to people, which is always interesting and humbling. But today we have Adam Coleman. How are you, Adam? I'm doing well. Good. Thank you. Except for the tickle in your throat, I guess. Uh, yes. <laughs> but you're, you're you're on the camera, so I can't get, get, get sick, which is nice. And you live in New Jersey. I'm in Nevada. We're a couple of time zones apart uh, for people who are um, interested in geography. Uh, thanks for making time because it's dinner time where you are, and I appreciate it. So yeah. Uh, We met sort of on Twitter, sort of, I guess. (laughs) I started following you on Twitter because I liked what you had to say. And you recently wrote a book called Black Victim to Black Victor, which we'll breeze over in a little bit. But you have a really interesting story along the way, too, uh, dealing with uh, mental health issues and uh, your overcoming of anxiety. So I'm going to shut up because you're the guest. And I'm going to let you introduce the rest of yourself and talk about how you – like moved careers and got into full-time writing and all that stuff. Cause it's really intriguing. And it's pretty inspirational. So, um, let me step out of the way. Thank
1: you. Yeah. So, um, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> who are guess, you? Uh, <laughs> who am I? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh, so um, my name is Adam Coleman. I am uh, a writer. Um, you know, I write on my Substack. Uh, I also write uh, very frequently for the New York post. Um, uh, I've written for other publications like Newsweek and Federalist, uh, Daily Mail. Um, but I, I basically write wherever I have the opportunity to write. Um, I'm also a columnist for Human Events, so I don't want to leave that out. Um, but yeah, I i guess I got everything started basically from writing my book. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I essentially, the book was... Uh, an avenue for me to express myself um, after the death of George Floyd. Um, it for me, it was observing the the scenery around me, um, observing social media, observing the people that I knew, and it just seemed like everybody was having a panic attack. Mm. And as someone who's experienced panic attacks, like you you realize that they're somewhat irrational, right? Um, they're not based out of off of nothing, but they go that extra layer into being uh, uh, unhelpful and, and irrational. And that's what it felt like. It felt like I was watching people uh, just having a panic attack. And what made it worse is that the media was egging it on, manufacturing narratives. Um, you have all these people who go on television who would back it up and say, you know, Black men are scared they're going to be killed by the police on a daily basis. Um, and and given the impression that uh, by existence of being Black means that you are in constant danger. And I never liked any of these, these uh, narratives that came out, especially from my personal experience and especially from a factual standpoint that's highly irrational, highly wrong. Um, But the other part was that even the people that I agreed with, um, I ultimately didn't like how they were saying certain things. Um, And I still to this day, there are certain people who are in the realm of commentary that I do not agree with on how they talk about race. And I wanted to talk about it the way I actually wanted to talk about it. Like I I just wanted to express myself. Um, So people understand I had no public platform. I wasn't on Twitter. I had a Facebook account, but I didn't post anything on it. I basically just occasionally lurked and saw what my family was doing. That was about it. Um, I kept to myself. I was pretty private. Most people didn't know my politics um, or my change in politics or anything like that. So I wanted to be able to sit down and just fully express myself because I felt like we were building an environment where you couldn't do that. Um, and you, especially for me, you have this entire narrative created about someone with my identity and I'm not allowed to, to talk about it. I'm not allowed to say, well, I disagree. I'm not allowed to add my two cents without feeling like I'm doing something wrong or feeling like I'm being a traitor or feel, you know, all these other things that makes you, um, makes you self-censor. And I was tired of self-censoring. And so, yeah, I just basically, I've never written a book before. I just trial and error. I tried to find my voice and I did. Um, and I, and you were mentioning before how you like my Substack articles and how clear I sound. Um, and the reason being is because, you know, for a lot of people who maybe will come from my direction, they write articles first and then they get into a book, um, And it's like a long process. But when you write a book, you know, for me, I wrote five days a week and I wrote for an hour to two hours a day. So when you write that much, you find your voice. Right. And it took me a few months to find like my exact voice and how I want to say something. Um, I at one point, actually, I went back and rewrote everything that I wrote before because my voice was clearer, My tone was less harsh. It sounded like me. And then from there, you just get better at writing and, and, you know, euphemisms and things of that nature um, and and becoming fully expressive. So the reason why my my articles sound very clear is because I know my writing voice and I know how to approach it. And writing the book was like a crash course course in writing. Um, And I think for other people, they don't have that. Uh, they are writing articles you have to write for a long time to get that um, to get that voice to get that exposure and things like that so uh, that's why it sounds very clear when I say something because I know what I'm trying to say I know how to approach it and and since then um, I've found multiple ways I have multiple voices depending on what publication I write for and you know I know how to express myself, uh, where at the core of it, it sounds like me, but my approach is, is different depending on who I write for.
0: And that concludes our podcast, ladies and gentlemen. No, <laughs> 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 that was really good. You laid a lot out there. Um, I, I have a journalism degree from undergrad, and so writing to me is very important, and uh, writing with uh, succession and clarity is, is equally important. Um, and you do that. And I, and I totally appreciate the growth process. Cause a lot of people uh, really, really struggle when they first start. So if you're listening to this and you're like, Oh man, I've always wanted to write, but I don't know how it's like, just start, you know, you kind of figure yeah. it out along the way. Um, and you were in it before, is that right? Like, Correct. Yeah. So like, I don't imagine there's a ton of writing that goes along with the job when you're in computers.
1: No, not at all. I mean, uh, other than, you know, BSing with people sure. while you're supposed to be working, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, you know, type into through chat and stuff, but no, uh, in general, uh, you know, occasionally you might do documentation, but it's not the same thing.
0: Right. Right. So th- uh, that's, that's cool. And I like hearing that story. Um, I want to ask what is human human events is that I'm not familiar with that publication. What, what did you mention? Is it human events? Is that what you said?
1: Correct. Yep. It's what, called human events. What is that? Um, it is, uh, it's a publication where they talk about politics, culture, um, you know, basically anything of that realm. Did, uh, digital? They've been or... around. F- yeah, digital. Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah, they've been around for quite some time. I want to say it was like 14 years or so.
0: Oh, geez. Yeah. Wow. I'm amazed I hadn't heard of that. I've heard of the other ones. Um, and, I, and I understand the the whole audience thing, like who who are you writing to when you try to write? something right but when you write a book like you're saying you wanted to express you this is one of the things I want to get into you you, I said you laid a lot out there one is when people want to express themselves Um, it's hard because you don't know who's going to be the audience it's it's almost right. like you are the audience and you're like I'm just writing this to get it off my chest or I'm writing to process that's like that's kind of what we do in therapy is journaling and that kind of thing uh, or you might write a letter to a a dead loved one or something with unresolved grief or something like that. But, um, these days with culture, the way that it is, especially online culture and cancel culture and, um, the culture of words are harmful and that kind of thing. It's almost like you can't do that. You can't write for yourself because you open yourself up to tremendous criticism. I I have two basic questions on that. One is, were you worried about that type of blowback at all? If you were aware of it at the time and two, mm-hmm. when you got it, cause I know you did, how did you handle it?
1: Um, so the first one was, I just didn't care. Like I, pre- I, for one thing, I prepared myself throughout the writing process to deal with any sort of criticisms. And I knew that how, some might come my way.
0: How, how did you do that?
1: Um, I mean, just by, just mentally saying to myself, it's going to happen. And, okay. you know, but early on, I I came to the conclusion that I didn't care. And I got the support from my, well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but I got the support um, from my now wife to go to go through with it. And so for me, you know, if I was to go to the extreme, I didn't get any permission from my job. I didn't, Nobody knew I was doing this. I, I would say in total, maybe four or five people knew that I was even doing this. Hmm. Um, my family didn't even know I was doing this. Um, was that so intentional? It, yes. Okay. It was very intentional. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I was just about done that I started telling some people. Um, and then I put it out once it was done. Um, but I, it, it was very intentional. Like I didn't tell my mother because parts of the book, I criticize my mom, but I do it for a reason. But I just didn't want her to be some sort of influence. Because I Mm -hmm. wanted it to be about me and how I express myself. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, So I, I basically I didn't want anybody to give me their two cents. I didn't want anybody to tell me, oh, you shouldn't do this. I didn't want anybody to warn me of anything. I simply just wanted to write this and express myself. And the people, the only people who knew was literally like four, maybe five people. And every so often I would send them excerpts so they would see like how it was going. But they were basically cheerleading me, right? And they were giving me motivation to keep going to write every single day. Um, and and so I, I just didn't want, I didn't want any any outside influence. I wanted the risk to be my own risk. If it was gonna happen, it was gonna happen but I was tired of being worried of saying something. I was tired of um, being scared of the possibility of something negative happening. I just wanted to do it. So um, I, I think
0: yeah, you, <clears throat> Excuse me. you see, you see me pensively uh, opening my mouth there to, to, to speak. And, and I know I wanted you to get to the other question, which is how did you handle <laughs> it? Because it did, it did come. Um, but so what, for the, un, the uninitiated, what we do in counseling is we try to push people into vulnerability so they grow. Mm-hmm. What you did was an incredibly vulnerable thing. And you were also very self-aware that it was going, there was a risk. What's the risk? What? Pain, usually, you know, somebody's going to whack you or if not many, somebody's. And you did it anyway. And, and like, I'm curious how the thought process went to like, cause most people don't get to that point. They get to the point of going, it's not worth it for you. It was worth it. Why was it worth it? and then we can talk about how you handled the you know the, the the feedback i guess
1: well i think it was worth it because i felt like not saying something was worse than uh you know saying something you know i felt like i've been through so many different things in my life uh you know economically just like struggling and all these different things and it just wasn't enough for me to like be worried that what I lose my job again. Like I've lost my job uh, before mm-hmm. I can find another job, you know, I'm going to make a couple people angry. So be it. Like, I, I just, I, I, I think a lot of it had to do with my previous development mentally uh, previous to thinking, even thinking about sitting down, writing a book, but all the things that I had overcome, all the things that I mentally told myself that, I need to become a better person, right? And I need to become a better example for my son. It's partly why I dedicated the book to my son, right? Because I wanted him to, to see what I was able to do. I am not a writer yet, or an author, and yet I sat down and I wrote this book and I did mm-hmm. something despite um, it being something that is controversial, despite me talking about stuff that uh, is unpopular to talk about, but I wanted to do it anyways. And and I wanted my son to see that you can do this too, right? You don't have to go along with what everybody says, even if it's 99% of people are saying something, but you feel that in your gut it is wrong, then say something about it. So I just didn't want, I didn't want to stay silent. Um, And actually it reminds me of something I wrote in my article not too long ago, the question of you know, to tell your kids when they ask you, why didn't you do anything, you know, being proposed to that question, like, what's your excuse? Why didn't you do anything? And I just didn't, I didn't think it was a sufficient answer to say like, oh, because I didn't want to lose my job or, oh, because I'm comfortable, everything is fine. I don't need to say anything. But like you have that, like maybe not everybody is meant to do everything. Right. But if you have that calling or if you have that feeling and you just sit there with it, and you do nothing with it, then you're doing possibly the rest of the world a disservice or somebody else a disservice.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that's just it. Right. Like fear is fine. You know, that's a fine motivator to avoid things. Um, But then you have Mm -hmm. to apply some logic to it and get out of the limbic mode and say all right well why am i afraid and do i need to be afraid is this a rational fear or an irrational fear you mentioned irrational fears of panic attacks where you know anxiety or fear starts to stack on itself and then it's like you become afraid of the fear itself like fdr yeah. um and so you know i it's crazy like you're laying out this thing is like well it wasn't popular i'm putting words in your mouth it's like it was it went against the narrative or uh, so many people say the certain things like I don't know, man. I don't know about that. Maybe, maybe so many people aren't actually in that camp. Maybe it's just the l- loud minority voices squawking heavily through the megaphones. And in doing something like writing a book, which is – did you self-publish this? Because I see wrong speech yeah. publishing. Yeah. Like, And that's hard enough as it is to like, get distribution without a publisher you just knuckled under and did it. And lo and behold, here you are now with, I don't know how many 80,000 followers on Twitter and, you know, subscribers. I don't know how many books you've sold, but like, obviously there's an audience, right? And had you not done that and just presumed that the overwhelming loud voices, which are probably few in quantity, aren't actually the, the broader demographic, um, I mean, here I'm a white dude and I'm like, yeah, let me, t- let me learn about black culture from, from this dude who wrote a book about it from his own self-perspective, right? Um, you that would have never happened. This conversation wouldn't have happened. The the other hundred couple hundred people who listen to this podcast won't get the opportunity. So the courage that over overrides the fear, I think, is way more important. And the logic that goes along with it says I'm speaking to the middle three standard deviations of the distribution curve. I don't care what the fringes say, no matter how squawky and loud they are. That, I, that, Like kudos to you, Bravo and way to play to the market instead of the popularity contest. I mean, that's, that's great. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And actually, uh, if I could say when, when I wrote it, I, I like, I knew that these people, the, the loud fringes were the fringe. But after It's hard to convince
0: it, yourself of that sometimes.
1: Yeah. Um, I just know, I knew that they were in, in particular positions and people were scared of the fringe. Right. Like when I would see corporations fire people, well, they might fire someone because they got a loud HR department or they had a couple people give complaints and they're afraid of, you know, backlash. You know, they're scared too. And Mm -hmm. so they just capitulate, even if they don't agree. So, you know, I knew that these people were the fringe, but after I wrote the book and after I put it out and started talking to people and bringing it out, I realized they're not just the fringe. They're like the super fringe.
0: Extremely fringe. Yep. Yep.
1: And they're, they typically of, they're typically of a particular class of people. And, and I, that's why like a lot of articles, I started writing about not just race, but about class, Yeah, right? Because the class is a huge signifier to a lot of different things. You know, I, I talk about the black bourgeoisie because they're real. They're the people who go on CNN and MSNBC to talk about how there's systemic racism everywhere. And I can't ever get ahead. Meanwhile, they go to their penthouse and they live in luxury, um, you know, and their boo-hoo story is when they go to, uh, a high-end fashion store and someone wasn't exactly nice to them, right? right. That's their racist moment. Um, so it's it was stuff like that that I started realizing that uh, these people are so extreme. They're not serious people. And why am I scared of them? Like, I, why should I be scared of these people? Um, even with me talking about things that are semi-controversial, I think if someone... Uh, who's let's say someone who is black who's not hyper political they're not an activist or non extremist they're just a regular black person and if i was to sit down and talk to them ab- about the importance of family they say yeah yeah i agree with that or if they actually sat down and read my book there might be a couple things that they don't disagree, that they do uh, don't agree with but I-, I would probably say the majority of what i am saying they actually agree with or at least they understand where i'm coming from um, my goal was not to write a black conservative book, right? My book isn't even really political. It is talking about culture. It's talking about ideology. It's talking about way people see things. And I dive in and out of talking specifically about black Americans and just people in general, because ultimately I'm trying to bring people together. I want to say that I want to say within the book that we have more in common than we do different. Yeah. And I think race is being weaponized to to drive a wedge um, within our country uh, for political purposes for money for whatever clout you name it and and i want people to understand that as much as like I, I have no problem with being black right but me being black is not my number one identity you know i'm a christian i am a father um you know I'm a son. I, like, I have all these other things. I'm a writer. Those things are far more important. Those are things are stuff that come up far more often than me being black. And, and I downgrade the importance of race for me personally because I know it's a weapon. Yeah. right? I know that it can be used against me emotionally. I know that someone can do something and, and try to get me to be highly upset. So that's why when you see me on twitter and i talk about stuff i when i'm on twitter i'm not angry mm. right I'm, I'm pointing out the flaws of stuff and the flaws of logic they could be talking negatively about black people for all i care and and i will say well how does that make any sense that's illogical what you're saying this isn't me taking a personal attack because i don't know you and i don't care right but i want other people who are witnessing to to see the illogical thought process that uh whoever i'm talking to is actually you know, putting out there.
0: Yeah. I I appreciate you saying that because that's, that was my approach to social media is I'm not engaging the person I'm engaging everybody else's eyeballs who are watching me engage the person, you know, and and my, my job isn't to change minds. It's to throw out new perspectives. And, and I think discourse is something that we've lost in the last couple of years for sure, probably in the last five to eight broadly, uh, the ability just to talk just to talk like I'm not, I'm not here trying to ram something down your throat or beat you about the head and shoulders with my ideology. I'm just, I just want to learn. And I think we've been kind of programmed to believe the only way to engage is to convince others. And it's like, that's, that's not good for relationships. That's, that's really, really bad. That's how, that's how communities fall apart. Um, when somebody has to be right instead of just seeking to understand. Um, so how did it go when you started kind of evolving into this celebritydom and uh, what, how was it with your family and your friends? Like when they, when they found out that you weren't just going to stay quiet?
1: Um, You know, what's interesting is that um, my family has been very supportive. Um, You know, I just went to Ron DeSantis's uh, inauguration with my cousin and, you know, he's, we differ a little bit on politics, but he's somewhere in the middle, right? And he was able to kind of just like have a good time and be around a, a bunch of Republicans and and so on and so forth. And he understands that I'm somewhere in the middle too. I'm not a Republican. I'm an independent, but I like Ron DeSantis. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, it's you hard know? not to like. So yeah, so um you know, but I, to answer your question, as far as my family goes. They've been supportive. They say, you know, let us know, we'll buy copies. Let us know what we could do. Um,
0: Your mom didn't mind being criticized.
1: That was something that I I think she was hurt by in the very beginning. But, you know, I had to explain to her that. I wasn't, I wasn't saying it to be malicious, Mm. right? I was actually harsher talking about my father. My father isn't alive. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm criticizing because I'm trying to bring a balance to the conversation. If I can sit here like no one's ever said, man, Adam, you shouldn't be so hard about on your father. Right.
0: Right. Right.
1: But then I can't ignore the faults of my mom for putting us in this situation. Correct. Because they're equally important as to my father uh, putting us in the situation. So. It was my way of bringing fairness to the conversation. Um, and and I think that we're often told, especially for from a Black community standpoint, we're not allowed to criticize our mothers. Right. Right. At least publicly, you're definitely not allowed to criticize your mother, but you're not supposed to, right? She raised you. She took care of you, especially if she's a single mother. Oh, you're not supposed to. She was just angel, never did anything wrong. And... And that attitude, whether it's uh, black mothers or anything, as soon as you put somebody or, or a class of people or a group of people on a pedestal, that means that they're infallible. Like you you just can't criticize them. So they'll never do anything wrong. And and that's not how you fix stuff because no one's perfect. And that's not how we address any problems by pretending that there is no problem when I mean, there clearly is, and we just repeat it and repeat it. So. I wanted people to to see a fair criticism of my father and my mom, right? I'm probably not even that fair to my father, to be honest with you. Um, I'm very harsh when I talk about it, but that's how I felt. But I'm also being critical about my mom, who did wonderful things, who did um, a lot in, in very difficult times by herself, but at the same time, she brought us in this environment, right? She made her life harder for making poor choices in some respects. So I have to criticize that too um, and the mindset that my mom had. So it's not coming from a place of malicious uh, intent. It's coming from a place of care because I want people to understand that my mom is flawed because she's a human being. I'm flawed. You know, I criticize other people, but I also criticize myself in the book too, the things I could have done better. Um, so it's not me pointing the finger. It's it. It's in saying I'm better than everybody. I see all the problems. It's saying that, um, I'm human. My mom's human. My father's human. You know, we all make mistakes, but we have to talk about the problems. We can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend that everything is good.
0: I got some things rolling through my head. One is the word introject, which is a a term that comes from Carl Jung. And it means an unquestioned belief or assumption. It's usually something that's been programmed into us by parents, media, culture, society, religion. And we don't bother to question it because it's largely inefficient when we're older to question everything we think we know. And when we're young, we don't know that we can. And so these cultural introjects, you mentioned, you know, the the, you can't. Can't criticize your mom. I mean, that's all over media, um, especially in Black culture. As I've seen it through movies and and film, particularly, um, you know, somebody criticizes a dude's mom, and it's like it's go time, right? And I think that that you go to go back to controversy. I was thinking about that word too. It's like why are things controversial? I think it's because we've been told that you're not allowed to question. So you can't question your introjects. And if you do, therefore it becomes a controversy. And and mm-hmm. that's, just, that's just foolish because that's not how we grow. We can't grow if we stay stagnant and just continue to swallow the introjected beliefs that are handed down from generation upon generation. Um, but what happens along the way is you end up creating pain. And I think people don't mm-hmm. wanna be in pain, so therefore if they don't know how to tolerate pain or they don't know how to tolerate criticism or feedback, they get defensive. And then that defensiveness creates the controversy, right? So it's, it's a bold person who steps willingly into controversy and tries to navigate it with a clear head and with compassionate intent. And you're doing that and you're receiving blowback from the people who aren't used to it. And that's basically what it comes down to is like, you're, you're not allowed to do whatever it is that you're doing because I said so, and I'm uncomfortable. And that's a, it's detrimental to how we communicate and how we evolve. Um, But I think it also, like you said, drives a wedge among different groups, uh, whatever the demographic may be. And I'd like to shift gears a little bit into fatherhood, because you do talk a a lot about your dad, both in your Substack and in your book. And then you've got your son, I've got my sons, I've certainly I have parents, and Mm -hmm. my family's not free of, uh, you know, strife, uh, come from a a very rigid Italian Catholic upbringing. (laughs) And so, you know, stepping out of that a little bit, uh, creates friction as well. Talk a little bit about how your own experience in being a son who lost his dad, you know, probably earlier than we would have prepared or, you know, expected or desired. And now raising up another generation of, of a young man, that's, that's also something that's a little like, you're not allowed to talk about men's issues these days. It's like, you know, men of mm-hmm. privilege and all that stuff. And, um, and so that becomes taboo and quote unquote controversial as well. Work. Walk us through
1: that. Yeah. So, uh, my father actually passed away. I want to say like a handful of years ago now. Um, uh, so it was, it was when I was in my, my thirties, mm-hmm. uh, when he had, he had passed. Um, and I, to, to example, to give an example as to how disconnected we were i found out he died like three months after he died mm. um because the last time i actually talked to him i was 21 um and I'm, I'm 38 today so you give people an idea so um i didn't really have a relationship with my father uh as a kid and especially as an adult there was there was zero uh communication between us there's a lot adult. of a lot there of hurt there too some,
0: that comes through when you in your writings too you, you're you, I know you've worked through a lot of it, but you there's still a lot of pain I can tell,
1: yeah, it's um, I don't know. I, I if it's interesting that you say that there's pain that comes through when I write about it, I think I thought I was writing more from disappointment and and not
0: i I put those on the same continuum. Um, yeah. So for, I mean, listeners of this know that I talk about emotional functioning a lot. So Mm -hmm. sad, sadness is one of our 10 core emotions, sadness, pain, hurt. They're all sort of on the same continuum. Um, but Mm -hmm. disappointment is a little bit of sadness, great disappointment or great sadness would be anguish, uh, or despair, Mm -hmm. right? So there's, there's quantifiable magnitudes that we can compare, but yeah, I I do put it on the same continuum. So maybe, and maybe it's just because of the work i do for a living i'm reading this and maybe it's my own confirmation bias being like oh this dude's still hurting <laughs> like i have no <laughs> idea i could be way off i don't know
1: yeah because i've done uh uh therapy and things of that nature and i've come to the point where especially after doing uh one particular therapy uh, when dealing with one particular therapist i had to come to a conclusion of i have to accept uh, the reality. I mm. just have to accept people for who they are. So I accept my father is the father that he is. And That's it. I can't wish for my father to be something he's not.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And
1: so, you know, I accepted that. I accepted my mom uh, for who she is and her flaws. Right. She has great things about her, and she has um, she has some things I I don't like about her. And so I can't, especially with my mom, I can't expect her to be become this person that she she isn't. And and I have to accept who she is. Set boundaries when I need to set boundaries, but other than that, you know, I still love my mom. So, um, you know, there there isn't as much. There actually there isn't any anger towards my father to be honest with you. Um, when I especially when I write here, I think when, when writing my book, there was more disappointment and more sadness, mm-hmm. but. Th- the book process was like the it was like the ending of my therapy when it comes to my father. I like I, I just got it all out and just put it all out there and that was the end of it for me. So when I talk about him in articles and things of that nature, it's just saying it how it is and it's showing people my disappointment.
0: I believe um, you. I believe you and, you, and yeah. you see you strike me as being at peace with that. I think it was my own yeah. biases reading that that, um, that I read into it. So thanks for correcting. That's, that's, cool. no, it's,
1: it's all good. Um, I almost forgot what's, what was the original question. Oh,
0: something about dads and fatherhood and, um, oh, yes, you know, raising yes. your own and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I, I would say, um, after writing the book, I wanted to, to make like any chance I get, I talk about fathers. Um, you know, I've written for, uh, the New York post and I've had articles about mass shooters and they typically have a similar type of pattern. Yep. They grow up in a dysfunctional home. They're disconnected from their fathers. Yep. Um, so I've 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 had unfortunate because there's been two mass shootings uh that have been um, the Uvalde one and the one in uh, was it uh the nightclub not too long Colorado. ago. Um yeah, yeah in Colorado. Um, so I wrote two articles talking about that very similar vein, uh, talking about their disconnect from their fathers and how it affected them. And I'm talking about these things because the United States is the number is number one in single parenthood in the world.
0: That um, I did not know, yes. but, but it aligns with all the divorce
1: rate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the United kingdom is number two, just so people know too. So, uh, but we have a serious problem when it comes to family disconnect. Um, you know, when I talk about my situation with my father, I always get responses from people who don't look like me, who said I had the same situation, or my my cousins going through the same problem. Mm-hmm. My father had the same issue, right? Because this is an American problem, yep. And and it's beyond color lines at this point. And uh, I've said before, and a friend brought this back up to me that I said this, but that you know, the rest of society pays for the dysfunction of families and, you know, they pay for it, uh, in jails, they pay for it in funerals, you know, like you name it, the rest of society pays for family dysfunction. And sometimes on the, on the fringes of it, it turns into hurting other people, um, or it turns into people hurting themselves with suicide, Mm -hmm. you know? So, we have to have more of these discussions as far as what does family actually look like? Um, how important is it? Because what I see in the mainstream and what a lot of people are accepting is the more, uh, modern feminist idea of what family is supposed to look like. Family is just whatever you want family to be yeah. right. And women can do whatever they want. And, and no one's to criticize. Um, you know, you don't really even need the father there because you can make your own money. So, so the men, the fathers are reduced to just being income earners. We provide nothing else for the children. Meanwhile, the mothers can leverage the government to, to get child support. They can leverage the government for custody. They can leverage the government for alimony and they can move and do whatever they want um, and take the children with them. Because the father doesn't need to see them anyways. He can come once every two weeks. That's not a big deal. You know, it's the standard of being a father is so low. Like, I I don't live with my son. Um, You know, my son lives with his mother. My son's 17 now, so it's a little bit different uh, because he's working and stuff like that. But, um, you know, growing up, I would have him every weekend. Pick him up every Friday. No issues with his mother. We work together. You know, she's a great mom, but I would pick him up every Friday, bring him home uh, uh, Sunday evening. And people would tell me, like, wow, that's great. You see your son all the time. And in my head, I would say, like, that's a low bar because I don't see my son enough. Like, I don't think people understand, like, even with me having him every weekend and I could talk to him throughout the week, I am always behind. I'm always behind. He doesn't live with me. And. I can't no matter how like I'm sitting here talking to you, the importance of fathers, the importance of being involved in your child's life. And I'm trying to be involved in my son's life. I'm always by default behind when it comes to my son and what's happening with my son. And that is a that's a problem. Now, imagine if I only had him once every two weeks or imagine if I'm constantly fighting in the court system to see my son because the mother doesn't want me to see him. Like that is a real problem and it affects the children. And then the children grow up and they have all types of problems. They have animosity towards their father or they have animosity towards one party and not the other, or even both parties. So the, the family dysfunction, on the extremes, it hurts other people, hurts you know, people end up hurting themselves through suicide. Um, but for the majority, they grow up in life repeating dysfunction and and being hurt, not willing to accept what has happened to them, not willing to grow and move past it. They've accepted the trauma as being part of their personality. And, and I'm trying to talk about, let's stop that cycle. The most important thing people can do who have experienced childhood trauma is stop the cycle. So their children don't have to experience it.
0: Are you going to have more kids?
1: I don't know. You know, my wife and I are trying, mm. um, but it, it may not happen. It's up to I God. Know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listening to you talk there sounds like listening to me talk. Honestly, like that—that that nice. It's not a rant. It was just very well laid out explanation of what's going on. Um, sounds like a, something I would say in a session. <laughs> honestly, yeah. um, what do we do to fix it other than just continue talking and encouraging? I mean, I my my Baileywick is emotional functioning. I think dudes suck at knowing what their emotions are. I think I think society uh, writ large sucks at knowing what emotions are because we just don't get it in any yeah. curriculum. So I'm trying to get men to get in touch with their feelings, so to speak. And I do it with a more of an academic approach, which is a little more, um, you know, disarming and a little more palatable. I think when you say, yeah, this is what your brain does. And this is why, uh, men tend to receive that a little better, especially when it's being delivered by, you know, somebody who looks like me with a beard and, like <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's, uh, you know, besides that, just education, like, what do, what do we do? How do we encourage a pushback on this? Because it's like what you just laid out there with the the ultra-feminist narrative of, you know, women can do it without the men. That becomes an introject. And then it becomes controversial to challenge it. And that's a problem in and of itself because that's not how we were designed to roam the earth.
1: Right. I think that, you know, I'm a realist when it comes to this. I don't expect things to change rapidly right now. Um, I almost feel like if the issue is going to be resolved, they'll be resolved either with the next generation or the generation after that. Um, I think when, when things fail so badly, at some point, people start to wake up and say, are we really doing this right? Mm. Um, and if we're talking specifically about race, I actually see signs where... I didn't see signs before where there are Black Americans who are questioning how they were raised, who are questioning. My mom did X, Y, and Z. Who are who are questioning not just their father but both their parents? Um, who are saying, you know what? I don't. You know, I watch my sister and she's struggling as a single mother. I don't really want that for myself. I, you know, I'm I'm hearing more of that. I'm hearing more of. I don't mean to use the word but conservative ish conversations as far as unfortunately wanting a nuclear family is considered a, a conservative
0: yeah i don't know how that <laughs> happened either that's, that's just bizarre to me why did we politicize right. that that's weird
1: I, yeah so it, i'm hearing more of that which is which is a a positive um i think gen z is more curious you know, we always talk about Gen Z and, you know, pronouns and all this other stuff. That's at one end, right? But on the other end, I think they're more curious. They have more information than they did before. Yes, like they do. Like for previous generations. And, and I think they're more willing to challenge certain things. Like if something doesn't look like it makes sense, they'll kind of say, like, I don't know if I want to do that, right? Um, so I actually give Gen Z more credit than I think, other people do. Um, but if it's going to, if there's going to be some sort of change has to come from them. Um, and we just have to, <coughs> excuse me, we have to tailor our message to them at some point.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's incumbent upon us, you're in, you're and I generation. I mean, we're only uh, five or six years apart. Um, mm-hmm. and the, the boomer generation had some residue from the, their parents that said just you know kids should be seen not heard fall into line do what I say it's it was a little overly rigid maybe but then but then they also were gifted the opulence that their their generation didn't have so I think that while the rules were in place the expectations were not because they were they became a little more um, I don't know comforted with with uh, technology and the emergence of nine to five jobs and pensions and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then we ended up being the, the original participation trophy generation. So we, we had even looser boundaries. And then we, we gave birth to this, this next generation that's ostensibly going to change it. But what they're doing is they're asking why. They're not, just, mm-hmm. they're not just grumbling about it and pushing against out of emotional reflexivity or um, you know, desire to separate and become individuals. They're, they're actually thoughtfully asking why it's almost forgive the analogy but it's almost like training a dog like dumb dogs will do whatever you tell them to do smart dogs will sit there and go tell me why (laughs) like why do i need to fetch the ball and i think it's incumbent upon us as as leaders as you know uh, managers superiors in the workforce or whatever supervisors business owners to tell them the purpose behind the tasks and that goes right down to parenting and parenting philosophy we can't it's not good enough anymore just to say go to school and get good grades because uh, they're they're all talking to each other. They're interconnected through social media platforms and whatnot and they're comparing notes and they're trying to figure out the purpose. And if we don't have that, we're going to get some pretty stiff rebellion. So if we want to yeah. raise up people who want to own their own lives, we got to give them reasons. And those reasons had better be grounded in something that's you know, rooted in doctrine, uh, scripture, ethic, value that's immutable and long lasting and preferably bigger than ourselves. Because otherwise, they're just going to be reflecting everybody else's whims and and desires, and that doesn't create a character. That creates maybe a a, a a persona, but it doesn't create good character. So, if we can teach people, you know, the the younger generation, why certain tasks are important, why jobs are important, why school is important, why maybe college isn't necessarily for everyone, and shake off some of those. Again, I go back to introjects. Then they're going to be better empowered to to take charge again and act with intentionality instead of reflexively falling into line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned social media, you, you talked about their, the interconnectivity, but, uh, one of your recent sub stacks discussed the, the algorithm, and this is something that's been eaten at me for probably going on four years now, pre pandemic for sure. Uh, there's a great group called the center for humane technology. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're the ones that put out the documentary, um, the social dilemma, And prior to the social dilemma, they had a podcast called your undivided attention. And I believe it's still going on, but essentially the social dilemma is a culmination of those much deeper dialogues on the, on the podcast. And they have amassed lots of people from big tech who have created the designs that we now know, like the endless scroll and the, and the time on task algorithms, that kind of thing. You hit some really, really good points about the division that that's creating uh, intentionally or unintentionally. I, th- I happen to think some of it's intentional and you mentioned some of those reasons before, not the least of which is the uh, accumulation of wealth and power. Talk a little bit about that and why it's why we need to make our kids pay attention to it and why we ourselves as adults need to pay attention to it too because we're getting sucked in as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, so people understand the article, it, it is a political article, but I'm talking about the power of social media Um, And the power of politically, uh, these big tech uh, corporations are left-leaning, to say the least, Mm -hmm. right? And we know that algorithms are incredibly intelligent, but they're ultimately programmed. So you can program them to do whatever you want. And we saw that, you know, I mentioned the Twitter files, where they were, uh, you know, hiding certain things. They were programming to promote certain things. shadow ban certain people um who use certain keywords and things of that nature so you can definitely do that with an algorithm automatically like that's not far-fetched so if if you have a if you have a left-leaning outfit that is highly identitarian right they're coming from the angle of white people should realize that they have privilege and you need to recognize your whiteness, right? So they want you to be a white identitarian. And then you have the far right that actually wants the same thing. They want you to be a white identitarian, right? They're coming from the angle that, let's say, black people are more likely to assault white people than white people are to assault black people. And you need to realize that you're white and you're in danger, right? So they want you to be on a daily basis more aware of the color of your skin Right, so you be- become more paranoid, mm-hmm. more cautious, more aware. Right? They essentially the fringes want the same thing. They just come from a different angle. Right? The far left pretends that they care, and they, you know, they they mask it in, you know, caring about other people, and you're the problem, and you need to fix certain things. And the other side is using fear as well, and just doing it from a different angle, um, but also sort of pretending that they care. Um, but in the end what ends up happening is that the fringes get promoted because the fringes are loud. You know, it's the car crash and everybody, you know, has their eyeballs in the car crash and then the algorithm keeps them up because it keeps their attention. Right. And so for me, someone who, you know, I would say semi-recently started paying more attention to the right as to how what the political right says, the rhetoric that they use, but even more so looking at the social media content and the stuff they promote. And for a while, I just thought like, okay, you know, it's whatever. But then I started noticing and I I would hear people who were in it longer than myself, who were black, who didn't like the constant promotion of black violence that was that was happening. And I was saying, well, like, it's a crazy video and the people happen to be black who are assaulting someone it's not necessarily because of this but then i started seeing how it wouldn't be just the video it would be the commentary attached to the video right it would be stuff like uh in saying in a very condescending way diversity is our strength mm-hmm. right and well obviously diversity isn't the problem it's the behavior of the people right cuz there're plenty of "Quote unquote diverse," and and when they're saying it, and see, this is what happens in the fringe. When everybody says diversity, they mean non-white.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, diversity <laughs> except for these people we don't agree with.
1: Right, and so both sides, both both the fringe, mean the same thing about the same word, right? And they want you to focus on that thing. And so I just started looking at how, because I really truly believe that. The majority of people aren't identitarians. They're not racial identitarians. But what's happening is that the fringe get promoted. And if you stay on Twitter long enough, you're not conscious of what's happening. You start to believe that, oh, maybe black people are going after white people at a high rate. Maybe it is black people who are the problem in society. right? You Then you start falling into these traps. And, and I had tweeted out, a screenshot of this guy who's who there is a legitimately like and it was an assault Or yeah it was some sort of assault and fight between uh, a black group and a white group and the guy said notice the pattern mm. right and he just left it as that and so my response was you know the right is slandered as being these races you know the republicans conservatives are racist and I said, it's stuff like this that doesn't help their case that they aren't. Right. And you need to call this stuff out. And so, you know, obviously, some people want to pretend that I'm stupid when I say, yeah, obviously, he's talking about the pattern of black and violent. Right. Don't don't act like I'm dumb by saying, oh, well, you're just seeing things that aren't actually there. This is what the guy is saying. And matter of fact, it's not just him. I'm just finally saying something now. And. The algorithm is catering to the extremes. And and I've always said this, you know, people say, well, what do you do about like the right would be like, how do we stop the the far left and, and stuff like that? How do we convince our kids uh, who are in the far left to, to get out of it? And my response is generally you can't, right? You have to let them fall out of it. They'll notice the the hypocrisy. They'll notice something and they'll leave it. But what's more important is that you keep people from going to the fringe. That is the most important because the the majority are in the center somewhere, right? You have to keep them from going to the fringe, but you have to point out that the fringe exists. And I don't see enough that the right points out that the fringe exists, that it's masquerading in the crowd alongside them, and they think that they're 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 just like me, right? No, these guys are not like you. Right? They just know how to sound like you. But when it's time, they say something that, that should really perk up your ears to, to indicate that they're not like you at all.
0: Do you think the fringes are growing? Or is one or the other growing faster?
1: Well, the progressive fringe is growing. And the see, I remember someone would say, well, how come you don't point out the, the right-wing white supremacists and you point out the left-wing white supremacists? And my response is, because the left-wing white supremacists have all the power. <laughs> they're in media, yeah. they're they're in everything. They're in schools, they're your educators, they're everywhere. These are what I call the woke white supremacists, right? These are the racial identitarians that exist in our society. So those people are far more dangerous because they're accepted, right? And they're broadcasted. They have way more power than the fringe people on the right that I'm talking about. They have no power, right? Um, they're on the outskirts of society. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of why I, t- I talk about one side more than the other. Are they growing on the left? I think they are, right? Because they're getting to our children. Uh, they've been in uh, colleges for years and there, there's been this shift and, I, and I'm working on it in my book, my next book, but there's a shift that happened in 2020. George Floyd became like the, the spark for DEI, it became the spark for uh, all this the far left uh, progressive nonsense that has become mainstream and injected into every aspect of our society. You know, that was the validation for people, I think for some people who are well-intentioned, who are like, George Floyd is so bad, you know, maybe we were blind to something going on, what do we do? And they were sitting there ready with a, a package that they've been sitting on for years. It says, here you go. Here's some policies that you gotta do. Here's what we need to do to change society because it's far worse than you actually are aware of. And, and people got sucked into this nonsense and, and lost reality as to what's going on. And, and I think while they are still fringe, it's way more accepted. And I think it's growing on the, on the left. Um, do I think it'll become majority? No, not at all. Um, I still think that is majority class oriented, uh, but there are some people who are just pacifying it and saying, "Well, I don't know any better, and this this is the ready made plan." And so I'm just following along with it because I don't. I'm not a racist. I'm not a bigot. I just want people to get along, um, and the malevolent forces on the left drag them with them.
0: Well, it's that's the real danger, right? Is if the fringe grows to a point where it becomes quote unquote normal. Now that's not the fringe anymore. That's the standard. And if you speak up against the standard, capital T, capital S or the norm or the science or whatever it is, you now are looked upon as the fringe, even though the fringe, you may not be, um, but you've been pushed into it. And I don't, I, I think it was Colin Wright who had that cartoon that he drew about is yeah. like in the left. And then like the, the, they all moved away and he's standing on the right. And he's like, but I'm not on the right. <laughs> like the left <laughs> became more left than, than I was. And more, certainly more than I'm comfortable being. And so you see a lot of these people coming out now, um, who've been ostracized from their institutions, uh, largely in the sciences, which is scary because they're not saying the right thing. And I, you know, he's I hear you say I don't think it'll become the majority. And I don't know, I don't have that same faith, I guess, because it's it's too hard to push back on when we've got the emotional <laughs> leveraging or the emotional blackmailing hostage taking occurring. And you're just you're just not aware. Like I'm just trying to go about my day working at Home Depot or whatever, or you in IT, and then all of a sudden Intuit is telling you to, you know, you gotta rethink your your skin color or Coca-Cola is telling you to be what less white. And it's like, whoa. Now it's now it's not the fringe anymore it's, it's everyday in my in my job and I don't yeah. I don't know how we have we return balance when reason is not acceptable we're not, we're not allowed to dialogue because if you start to dialogue then you're controversial right and you're challenging the thing and California just passed a law where doctors are not allowed to give uh, dissenting opinions about whatever quote unquote the consensus is on COVID-19 it's like, well, there isn't a consensus. Science is always evolving. That's what science does. It's supposed to be humble and questioning and non-attached to its findings. And what they did is they just took away the ability of reasonable doctors to balance all evidence. And, and now I'm worried about that happening for my profession because we've been told that we have to be affirming in our care. And it starts with gender. It's like gender affirming. It's like, well, that's that's not affirming. It's agreement. And it what it l- bleeds into is, my kid has ADHD fix him. It's like, well, actually from my perspective that you hired me to give you with my credentials and my thousands of hours of experience, I don't think he has ADHD. I think you have poor boundaries as a parent. Like Mm -hmm. pretty soon I'm not going to be able to say that because it'll be quote unquote unaffirming. And then my license might be in jeopardy. And I could see this as plain as day. And that's not the fringe anymore when they've captured licensing boards. So I don't know what we do about it other than continue having conversations. And hopefully the the vast majority in the middle, you know, the middle two or three standard deviations go, yeah, okay, I, I can speak up too. You know, it's a, it's a different me too movement. The me too movement was great until it wasn't, um, because it empowered a lot of people to push back against the hideous abuse they were suffering. And then I got hijacked and, um, and I'm, I'm worried that, that the same thing's going to happen. It's like, well, with all intent, it was, it was a good idea to have a racial reconciliation in the country, but now it's not a reconciliation anymore. It's like, we're going to tell you what to do. And if you buck us, then, um, we'll be it to you because we'll crush you with our steamroller. Um, yeah, I don't, mm, and, and, and unfortunately we're all glued to our devices, right. And they're all programming us to continue eyes on screen and, and, um, and it's very limbic driven, uh, you know, advertising companies make their money off of triggering excitement and fear to go buy products. And the product now is, is us. And that's, it's pretty pretty spooky stuff. Yeah, there's a no, trail off there. I,
1: <laughs> no, it's all, <laughs> No, I I hear what you're saying. You know, I try to be optimistic about it. Um, you know, you you had mentioned earlier about me receiving pushback. Actually, I don't really receive that much pushback. Hmm. And see and that's that's the amazing thing is that that's the fear. Right, right, right. right. Yeah,
0: I'm literally saying it right now.
1: <laughs> it's like, what did I
0: say earlier? Like, you had faith in the masses and the masses responded. It's like, well, maybe I should. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, uh, but for me, like, the fear was greater than it actually was. Like, I think the most, I thought it was actually pretty hilarious. Uh, uh, do you know who Roland Martin is? Uh, maybe. It's okay. He's okay. irrelevant. Um, <laughs> but he's. <laughs> He's 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 like this, uh, you know. He's a uh, a black Democrat personality. He's a jerk. Like he's not really relevant at all. Um, but he is known because he's been around commentary for years, right? Okay. He used to be on CNN a long time ago. Uh, he saw an article that I wrote in the New York Post saying that the mainstream media lied to me about conservatives, and it was basically just me talking about how. When I became more exposed to the right, I just thought that there were people and actually very nice people, a lot of people that I ran into. And when I went to a conservative conference, uh, you know, for the people who have race centered in everything that they do, uh, they really didn't even talk about race. (laughs) You know, they were talking about other mundane conservative concepts that anybody would expect conservatives to talk about. And race rarely, if ever, came up. So, you know, I, I just basically talked about how, you know, this is all nonsense. It's all slander, right? These people, like, there's no political party or political wing that has a monopoly on racism, right? Yeah, people yeah, are people, true. right? And, and fringe people think fringe stuff. Illogical people think illog- illogical stuff, right? But there is nothing about conservatism that is racist. You know, conservatism is very individualistic. And that's the opposite of being a racist, because racists are generally collectivists. So either they're not really conservatives <laughs> or or they're masquerading as conservatives or something like that. But yeah, for playing 4D,
0: um, 4D chess or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh but anyways, I bring that up because Roland Martin had tagged me saying that I made this conservative conference sound like a, a kumbaya, racial kumbaya. And but he tagged me, yeah, right, because he wants to get my attention. And I sat there and I said, No, I just blocked him and I just moved on. And I felt so much better, right? Because he ultimately he's less relevant than me. Mm. And so if I respond to him, then it's just these two black, two check blue checks, who are gonna be arguing over something. And it doesn't even really matter because we'll never come to an agreement. It's a waste of energy. It makes him more relevant, right. and I don't, I don't want to do that. He's my, trolling. That's my, the
0: definition of trolling.
1: Yeah. yeah, and my goal for my articles, my bo- goal for my book was to express myself. If people don't like it, that's fine. But I literally have, I've come to a point. I came to a point a long time ago. But I don't care about the opinions of people I don't respect in the first place, and I for sure don't respect him. (laughs) So I'm I'm not going to give him my time or energy Um, and he's lucky I'm even talking about him right now because I'm just giving an example. But outside of him, I really don't get much feedback, uh, much negative feedback because of how I talk about things. Right. When I talk about race, when I talk about black Americans. The vast majority of time, I'm defending black Americans because the way I see it is that the mainstream media uh, insinuates that black people are incapable, insinuates that government needs to do this for them, that they need the helping hand of other people. It is this, uh, you know, people say bigotry of low expectations. It's this downgrading yeah. of our emotional state. It, it And they make lots of money doing that. And so I feel somewhat of an obligation to say that we are more than capable of fixing problems ourselves just like anybody else and and stop insinuating that we're constantly scared that we're weak and feeble and the only way we can survive in america is by white people being nice to us and doing more for us it is insulting to me and so I write it in a particular way where I'm defending black people. I'm defending because it's the right thing to do, not just because I'm black, but it's the right thing to do. You shouldn't talk about anybody like that. Um, you know, I uh, today, slightly off topic, but, but today, um, was it today or yesterday, the rumor about Marjorie Taylor Greene, they were trying to say that she slept with Kevin McCarthy because all of a sudden she started to vote for him.
0: I missed and that <laughs> from,
1: Yeah, you missed that one. But for me, I'm not even a Marjorie Taylor Greene fan, right? But I see something incredibly wrong about insinuating that this woman is sleeping with some guy because she voted for him. And so I, I tweeted out, "Donald Trump endorsed Kevin McCarthy, so that must mean he slept with him too." Brilliant. If we were to play the same yeah. logic game, and and so I'm it's to me, it's not about oh defending your side, defending this person because you like them. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And it was the right thing to do to say that Marjorie Taylor green is sleeping with some guy because she switched her vote it is the most asinine thing that does uh, certain people are trying to spread on the right. Um, and actually funny enough, she liked it. <laughs>
0: now, uh, you, know, you know, you know, you've made it, it when, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the whole time you're talking there and this is how programmed I am by this this garbage, it, I'm thinking well that's just your inner white supremacist coming out um, <laughs> because that's what that's what certain people who have published certain books and make a very good grift off of teaching it to institutions and, and, um, and businesses say is like they've got epistemic closure with their circular ill logic that says if you say the things that Adam Coleman just said then you're just not aware enough to know that you're a victim, right? And I I was unfortunate enough to see a post somewhere uh, recently where somebody was knocking cognitive behavioral therapy because it was uh, it's individualistic and how dare we um, charge people with taking responsibility with their own lives because don't they know how victimized they really are? It's like, well, yeah, I guess if you point to the system at all times or nay, the society, then yeah, we're all victims and everything's trauma and you're just never going to get out of it. And so we'll just celebrate everybody's traumas while continuing to be mediocre. I, like who, <laughs> wh- where, who's the savior here? Like it used to be you know, fly in the white savior for the black people. And now it's like, no, we can't even do that because black people are just never going to be saved. It's like, What? No, now I'm crazy. And and my eyes went crossed. Um, (laughs) I'm getting a little tired of it. And I think the only way we push back is to to just call it what it is, which is nonsense based in fabricated beliefs. And that's, that's really what it is. You can't point to a doctrine or a scripture that says, this is why we believe what we believe. And here's the train of thought that we arrived at this conclusion. It's just somebody decided someday that they were going to make money by publishing a book that, uh, they did very well selling. And now that becomes the the circular thinking that supports the same ideology over and over and over again. And nobody bothers to go, wait a minute. Um, can we, can we ask questions? No, that's, that's oppression. Like wh- Cause the book says so you can't make self-referential, you know, conclusions like that's, that's, that's nonsense. But unfortunately it's, what's getting people like Jordan Peterson in trouble. We're recording this, you know, beginning of January and he just got, um, threatened with having his license taken by the people who provide such things in Canada And you know, I'm, I'm glad to see him fighting it. Um, but not everybody's at the the level of credibility and swagger that the Jordan Peterson is. If that happened with me, I mean, I got a business with 30 employees and their families all hinging on it. You know, it's like you just made something up because you were, your feelings were hurt. I mean, I don't, and you call it unprofessional conduct. That's that's the type of the threat level we're dealing with here. And I think collectively, if we all just say, no, no, we're not doing that, then maybe we have a sea change. Um, but I'm, yeah. I'm a little concerned about the erosion and we need more people to stand up and say, no, that's nonsensical. We can't we can't allow the individual to override the collective. That's, I mean, that's that's where we're at. Um, and I see I see it in various things too. I mean, the, I work a lot with the gun community and firearms community is very sensitive to mental health issues for all the policy reasons. But that, that's getting eroded too. And I think collectively people just have to stand up and say, no, this isn't right. You as an individual don't get to govern what all of your business or your employment or your school does and how they operate simply because you don't like something. Uh, we need to build more resilience and, and quit the coddling. Hey.
1: I agree. Yeah. And, and we, we end up um, catering to the most sensitive person in the room. It's, you know, it's
0: emotional reflexivity right I mean our brains tell us like uh oh I, I let somebody down that's shame I failed to meet expectations I don't want to get kicked out of the tribe uh, so I will make amends except the problem is the person who's complaining probably wasn't in your tribe to begin with and you can't have a path to reconciliation if they don't grant you one so right. we need to start doing what you did which is like this guy's irrelevant he's trying to coattail me and <laughs> like I just need to not engage um, yeah yeah uh, that's probably a good place to stop. I, I have so much more that I want to talk to you about, and I hope we can you know, continue chatting offline. Um, where do people find you?
1: Uh, I am mostly on Twitter these days, so um, at wrong underscore speak. Um, you can definitely check out my sub stack, adambcoleman.substack.com. Um, I'm basically writing in the New York Post every week, so you know check out my, my articles in the New York Post. Uh, definitely check out articles at human events as well, uh, where I'm a columnist. Um, the thing I didn't know existed,
0: yeah. but it's been around for a decade and a half. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and basically, uh, I'm, I'm everywhere where I can try to have some sort of impact. Um, my main goal with the book was to express myself, but after that, um, well, kind of with the book, but especially after that, was to have a positive impact in society, Um, to continue to express myself, to advocate for people to express themselves. um, And that's what I'm trying to do with Wrong Speak Publishing. Uh, So we have the um, article publishing side where we advocate for regular people to express themselves. We give them a platform, um, you know, amateur writers, just regular people who just have a story that they want to talk about it's extremely therapeutic for them. um, Because I'm like, I hear where you're coming from, tell the world, we'll help promote it. And I can't tell you just like the number of people are like, thank you so much for doing that. Because they were just like me, just sitting in their house, feeling frustrated because they have no audience to say how they feel or even encouragement to say how they feel. And we're saying, tell your story Express how you feel. Talk about it, and we'll promote it. I'll help. I'll help you. I'll help support you. So you know, we have we have some staff writers who I'm I'm helping to expand and 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 help. Um, you know, we now have uh, a senior editor. We have a contributing editor wow. as well. Um, so we're going on that end. And today, actually, coincidentally, I just signed my first author. Um, Very cool. So we're working on the book publishing side as well to have his story heard and and to put it out there. So, um, I feel like I have four or five jobs, Yeah, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm staying busy, but ultimately I'm trying to have a positive impact. Um, you know, this is less about me as time goes on.
0: I definitely detect that, um, your, your humility and your deference to the greater mission is really obvious. Um, you know, what we didn't do though. I, we didn't actually talk about how you overcame anxiety. That's how I led the whole, th- the show. <laughs> uh, you want to spend a couple minutes talking about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm in no rush. Um, so to, to give like a, an idea of where my anxiety was, um, you know, I, I had general anxiety for a long time. If I'm to really go back, I, I had it probably most of my life. Um, some form of general anxiety or depression, moments of depression, um, I definitely had a moments of suicide uh, or a suicidal thinking, um, which I was able to overcome on my own. But it was more situational uh, as to why I was thinking that way. Because um, it was a short period of time I was away from my son. Um, mm. And that was, you know, that would definitely make you uh, uh, feel in an altered state. Um, but overcoming it. Oh, and one other thing. Uh, I was in a very stressful job where I realized I was having panic attacks. Um, I was having panic attacks off and on. Um, And there was one particular time where I just felt like I felt doom. Like that's the only way I can describe it. And when I went to a supervisor and said, listen, can you give me like 15 minutes off the phone? Because I worked in a call center. and They they looked at me and said, sorry, we can't. We need all hands on. And so at that point, I was like, I don't know what to do. And I, I went to someone and I told them, like, here's what's going on with me, a co-worker. And they're like, go out on leave. Take care of yourself. And so for about a year or so, I was in and out of uh, FMLA and, um, you know, trying to get better and take care of myself. But I was home a lot. And I remember one day feeling like like I knew I needed to go somewhere, like go to the store and I felt scared. Like I didn't feel lazy. I felt scared. And I said, I don't like how that felt at all. Hmm. Like I felt scared to leave the house. And I would later read like, you know, there's links between panic attacks and agoraphobia. Yep. um, And you know, the development of it. And I, and I caught it at the very beginning of when I started feeling that way. And within a week I went to a therapist and, you know, the therapy session ended up turning into going through my childhood and like i i think i saw her like three times a week for like a month holy cow um, That's yeah heavy. just it was it was heavy um and, and it was i would say most of the sessions me crying <laughs> like it was just working through a whole bunch of stuff um and that was like one particular time in my life where especially the agoraphobia part and and, and just kind of moving on. It didn't really get rid of my anxiety, but it, it definitely brought calmness, more calmness to, to my life. But it wasn't until later. Um, it sounds cliche, but after like a bad breakup where I was brought back to a point where I had to ask myself, like, what do I like doing? You know, who am I? Because I did everything she wanted to do. I hung out with her family mm. and now all that's gone. And I don't even know what I like to do or what I want to do um and so i literally just kind of went on like a a personal um uh you know uh, like a personal upgrade uh to for myself and discovering myself and what i wanted to do where where i want to be so like the first thing i did was found another job and immediately i made more money so of (laughs) course that feels good Um, and and so i found another job okay what's something i always wanted to do i always wanted to go to europe okay Made plans to go to Europe. Uh, I wanted to learn German. It was like a weird thing that I wanted to learn. And so I started learning German. Uh, And one of the places in Europe that I went to was Berlin. Um, But I I did two weeks away in a foreign country that, you know, I don't know anything about and by myself. And I came back and I felt so much calmer, but it wasn't like a vacation calm. It was just like a peace like I was at peace and as time went on I realized that I had a lot of social anxiety and I would think about times where like my ex-girlfriend would say we're gonna go to this restaurant and I would say to myself well how's the parking there when I get inside like where are the tables placed like am I gonna be a clumsy idiot and bump into a table like I was just worrying about stuff and then I would go and everything would be fine. So why was I investing all that energy And and that nervousness and that anxiety was like, was all over Um, and it would turn into insecurity and it would turn into all these other things. And I, I I realized when I traveled abroad by myself, that everything was new. (laughs) I had never been to anywhere in any of these places. And it was literally throwing me in the deep end to teach me how to swim. And I came back so good. And so now I'm to the point where I enjoy the unknown. I enjoy going to these places because so many good things have kind of come out of it. So that's why I always tell people like, if you can solo travel, like do it, you know, just do it. You know, Europe is training wheels as far as solo traveling, it's generally safe, Um, but just do it because you meet people. Um, you, You have such a wonderful experience, you know, and I'm far more confident today than I was when I started through that adventure I've met so many wonderful people from other countries. Um, And not too long ago, someone I met, a German that I met in Portugal, um, we hung out for the day. We met up again later on in Berlin and hung out, had a great time. She came to America and she had dinner with us, you know? And, And she's like, you know, it's so great that we keep in touch and we have this connection. None of that would have happened prior. None of that would have happened if I just said, no, I won't talk to these people because I don't really know who they are. I just said, "Hey," and I went up to him and started speaking German. <laughs> you know, the,
0: so there's a. I learned this from my good friend and mentor Christian Conti, who I can't go without mentioning ever. Um, but he uh, <laughs> he identifies the difference between self-esteem and self-efficacy as self-esteem is what you feel about yourself. Self-efficacy is how you feel about what you have accomplished or what you can do, mm-hmm. and what it sounds like is that you've. You built your self-efficacy to the point that you can embrace mystery, and yeah. that's super powerful. You know, the anxiety, I always say that the the stuff in the DSM, which I have right here, my my Diagnostic and Statistical <laughs> Manual of Mental Disorders, all those codes are symptoms. They're not problems. The problem is always something that doesn't have a code attached, like doesn't feel good about oneself, doesn't know how to process emotions, you know, childhood trauma. And so if you hit the root of that plant, the leaves, which are the symptoms, just disappear. And your anxiety as a symptom was, uh, alleviated by addressing the root, which is your sense of capital S self. You got self-efficacy from those experiences and you realize, Hey, I can do this. Right. And then, and then of course it just became, uh, you know, a feedback loop of like all the results that you get from doing the spooky, scary, mysterious things reiterated that you can keep doing it over and over. That's really, really cool, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, And I don't think if I, if I never went through that, I wouldn't be sitting here with you because, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of being revealing and talking about certain things and being worried if someone says certain things or Roland Martin might say something mean about what I said and, and call me a coon or something like that. Like I'm to the point where none of that stuff bothers me. I'm so comfortable with who I am. Um, and, it, and it's amazing when you overcome all these things and you exude confidence about yourself led for me to get married, you know? Wow, um, yeah. You know, we're just past one year being married. And, and part of the reason why is that she saw how confident I was in that you know, was a huge turn on for women. So why was I struggling with previous relationships? Cause I wasn't confident, right? Yeah. I was a nice guy, but I wasn't confident. And, and that, you know, that eats away at a relationship. Um, so all these things impacted my life in such a positive way. And I wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't go through through all the, all the struggles, all the pain, all the confusion. I wouldn't be sitting here uh, talking to you about it if I didn't go through all that and, and saw how I can overcome it. Um, and so that's why I tell other people, you know, if they need help to overcome these things. I mean, uh, one tweet I put out talking about my anxiety, actually my, my sub stack. Uh, it turned into a subsec article. I had people reach out to me talking about, like, I'm still going through anxiety and, and I'm talking to them and I'm saying, how are you doing? You know, here's what you got to do. I'm trying to help them to show that they're not alone. Like, if I can come out of it, you can come out of it. So, you know, there's a lot of things behind the scenes where I try to do. I try to help people as much as I can. Um, and I think I think that is, that's life, man. Like, you have to pay it forward if you can pay it forward. Um, and I, I, try to do as much as I can.
0: You are a solid human being and, um, I'm glad we, we got to talk and I, I get this, uh, phrase popped into my head is confidence through vulnerability. And, and I yeah. think that you just demonstrated that. So, um, hopefully other people hear this and, um, find their own path through the same, same courage. Right. And then on the other side is, is that confidence that doesn't require a masquerade anymore, of pseudo confidence it's genuine it's legit it's authentic and uh, mm-hmm. the more consistent you can be across all avenues of your life which i totally detect now cuz the way you present here is the same way i see you in your writings in your postings um, you seem like a really consistent individual too and um, you know it's it's really it's really cool so thank, thank you thank you and that is where we're going to end the podcast <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks. And um, say hi to your wife for me who I haven't met, um, but seems like the right thing to say. <laughs>
1: yes, I will. For all sure. right. She's in the other room okay. uh, hanging out with the dogs. So.
0: Yeah. She's she keeping them quiet, which is great. It's always good for yeah. for, for good audio when when dogs are barking in the background. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, Adam, thanks. I appreciate you. And uh, on behalf of the, the Naga Notes family and our Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.